0: So we just read Psalm 35 and many people are surprised and shocked by such psalms or just confused. I can never remember the name that we give to such psalms. I had to ask Alex. I sat there staring at him blankly for a while trying to think of the word. And then I had to do the same thing with Heidi, and then finally I had to look it up. I, the word always eludes me. The word is imprecatory. But kids, do, do any of you know what imprecatory means, what an imprecatory psalm is? Nobody knows? So it's a useless description anyway. We do have a word that's very similar to imprecatory that you probably know a little bit better, and that is cursing. Cursing. So there are a number of psalms spread throughout, and this is one of them, Psalm 35, that we've just read, that called down God's curse on people. So not cursing as in cussing, not just using bad words. That's not what an imprecatory or a cursing psalm does. But a spiritual curse... Because it actually is a prayer to God saying, God, fight against these people. Now that's shocking. That's shocking to many people. Many people refuse to accept that that's actually what's going on in these psalms. They want to rewrite the psalms or reinterpret them to mean something other than imprecations, other than curses. Um, and others simply say that uh, they're, it is what they are, but, it, but they're no good. They're no good. Among these people is C.S. Lewis. Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say. He says, We must not either try to explain them away or to yield for one moment to the idea that because it comes in the Bible all this vindictive hatred must somehow be good and pious. We must face both facts squarely. The hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised. And also, we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it. C.S. Lewis was wrong terribly wrong. He seeks to lead people astray, to view the imprecatory Psalms as something that are bad, evil, wicked, festering, gloating, undisguised wickedness. He called them devilish, diabolical, petty, and vulgar. Many things that C.S. Lewis wrote were very good, On this and in several other places, C.S. Lewis was out to lunch, as they say. Now, I have no intention of trying to defend these psalms and try to show you somehow that C.S. Lewis was crazy wrong. Instead, I want to do the opposite. I want to simply teach you to learn to love them. So I'm not going to focus on what's wrong with Lewis and many other people who would say that they're wicked. I'm, I'm going to ignore them completely and say they're wrong, okay, and then move on and say, now look at the beauty and the glory of this psalm. And so at the end, I hope you won't be like grudgingly be admitting, okay, well, yeah, I guess. Lewis is probably wrong, but rather that you'll be able to to look at what Lewis wrote and be like, I don't get it. How could he be so dumb? This is great. God's Word is amazing because that's what we are told in the New Testament that all of Scripture is profitable for us for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay? So ignore people who try to tell you all the reasons why this part or that part of the Bible is wrong. And just study the Bible. And what you'll find is that it is good. God's Word is good. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to study the Bible. And one of the first things that we see is that psalms like this, this Psalm 35, it's... Aggressive. It's aggressive, isn't it? Look at that first verse. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. It's not just aggressive. It's A psalm given to us by God to teach us holy aggression. Holy aggression. Now, this may seem contrary to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Okay? You can see how that would be a thing that somebody would raise up. And maybe Lewis does. I don't know. I... I, haven't bothered to read all of Lewis trying to argue that the Psalms are bad, but you could easily imagine somebody saying, "No, no, 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 that's Old Testament. We have a new command. The command is love. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. But Jesus didn't have any problem with doing both okay and doesn't have any problem with doing both and we need to do both as well to be like Jesus so let me let me show you some places just without without turning to him just remind you of a few places where we see Jesus doing both when Jesus speaks to the religious leaders pharisees what does he call them? Do any of you kids remember? Yeah. yeah, vipers. Vipers. Now, is that aggressive to call a group of people a brood of vipers? It's pretty aggressive, isn't it? And what about what about love? Where is where is loving? Your enemies in that. Well, how about when he met in John 3 with Nicodemus the Pharisee and taught him what it looked like and what it meant to have new birth in him, in Christ Jesus? So Jesus has no problem doing both, even with the Pharisees, right? What about when Jesus comes again? How is he going to return? What does Revelation describe him like when he returns? Anybody? Right at the beginning of Revelation. Any of you kids tell me what, what it says about him? How is he going to come? It's a crazy picture. You, oh, go ahead, Zeal. You got it, this one too? Oh, yes. Yeah, as a thief in the night... That's right. That's that's not revelation, but that's exactly how he's going to come. And he, Liam, you got a description with a sword coming out of his mouth. Is that aggressive? It's a weird picture, right? But you can't interpret it any other way than fighting. Revelation makes clear he's going to come destroying the wicked. Obliterating his enemies. But what else is he going to do? He's going to rescue his people. And so you see both of these elements brought together in Christ Jesus without any problem. It's no trouble at all. Okay, Now is it, is it trouble for us, is it hard for us to have holy anger? Yeah, it's, it's, it can be pretty hard, right? Is it, is it easy for us to have unrighteous anger? To, to, to lose our temper at people? To Very easy, right? This is why brothers who are supposedly in such harmonious relationship with one another, so, so loving to one another, can suddenly turn red and punch each other. Because we lose our tempers, right? And, we, and it's easy for us to have unrighteous aggression. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't have a problem with uncontrolled emotions and anger getting the better of him. When Jesus is angry, he is accountably angry. In other words, there's a good reason for it. And he uses his anger for good purpose. Now, why do I talk about Jesus when we're, when we're talking about Psalms? Well, as Pastor McNeely already pointed out, this Psalm reveals things about Jesus to us. Reminds us of things that we see in the New Testament. But when it was written, it was pointing forward in part to the Messiah that would come. And teaching the people about this righteousness Aggression—that would be a part of the Messiah. And even at the time of Jesus, the people realized from things like this that the Messiah would be aggressive. They were counting on the Messiah to fight like a uh, like a conquering lord, like a king, defending his people against the Romans. It just so happens that they were wrong about what his fighting would look like and what specifically he would be fighting against, okay? But is it any surprise that David, the great fighter and warrior king, is it any surprise that he can picture God as a fighter? No. It makes complete sense, doesn't it? He can picture God fighting on his behalf in part because he has seen God fight on his behalf. Now, how many of you have ever used a sword in a... uh, Situation where you were trying to defend your life no oh, nobody has anybody has anybody in here ever uh, had to defend their life physically anybody okay well that's a blessing no hands well what that means is that It might be hard, just like it's hard for us to picture a shepherd doing shepherd's work because how many of us have ever shepherded, right? How many of us have ever fought the way that David had to fight with physical fighting? And so it might be hard for us to picture God fighting on our behalf. Because it's hard for us to even picture someone wielding a sword. In spite of all our movies, it's hard for us to actually imagine somebody taking a sword and doing the brutal, bloody work of shoving it through somebody else. It's terrible to think about, right? But this is what David is calling for God to do on his behalf. To take up the sword, to take up the spear, the shield, the buckler, right? And to attack to fight on his behalf, to fight against those who fight against him or against us. This is David's prayer. And this is why it is an imprecatory psalm. Now, I remembered at that time, barely. It's a cursing psalm because it's calling God to actually do this work against people. But Jesus, isn't Jesus loving? Jesus who says, let the little children come to me. Can you picture him then taking up the sword? Well, for starters, Jesus is the Lord of Sabaoth. Another word that we have no idea what it means, right? What does it mean? To call the Lord, we sing a song, right? Lord of Sabaoth, his name. It's not Sabbath. Yeah, wait. Lord of hosts. Okay, we're getting closer. We got English now, right? But what are hosts? The hosts, Yeah. Can't hear you very well. What's that? Oh, I, I still can't hear you. That's okay. The hosts, what's that? Oh, he's hosting a party. Oh, that's a host. Yeah, that's a different kind of host. So that's why we have to get the that's why we gotta get the the meaning clear, because that's not the kind of the Lord of hosts that we're talking about, okay? So when we say Lord of hosts, we're not just talking about the guy who's in control of all the people who throw parties. We're talking about the Lord of hosts, in the way that means the guy who's in control of all of the armies. The hosts are the armies. It's crazy. So Jesus, being called the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the commander of armies. The prince that that is in control of all of the armies. And what are armies for? Armies are for fighting. Fighting. Ah, sorry, I didn't let you answer that one. He was ready, though. Armies are for fighting enemies, right? They're for protection. And this is actually why it's very easy for us to see Jesus as the Lord of hosts and also as the friend of sinners and of little children. Because what does, what does it take to be an actual friend of sinners and of children. It requires you to protect them, doesn't it? And so we want Jesus to be a fighting Lord, don't we? We don't want him just to be like, oh, the children are so nice, let them come to me. I hope that nothing happens to them. We want him to protect them, don't we? To stand up and fight against those who would harm them. And he's got whole armies at his disposal to do so. And he does it. Praise God that Jesus fights. That God is a fighter. Will you see God as a fighter? Are you willing to see God as a fighter? It's necessary for him to fight on our behalf. And so we don't want to lose God being a fighter. We don't want to lose the imprecatory Psalms that call out to him and say, Rise up, O Lord, and fight. Because we do need him to fight. Because we have enemies that are too powerful for us. God, holding weapons like a sword or spear or battle axe against your enemy is quite the picture, isn't it? The battle axe. God with a battle axe. Now, that's, you, you, the moment you picture it, you can't, you, you can't because you can't picture God holding something, right? But it's a scary thought, nevertheless. Jesus, with a sword coming out of his mouth, is a scary thought. It's meant to be a scary thought, right? But you know what? I don't think it's nearly, I don't think verses 2 and 3 where we get that picture are nearly as frightening as verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6 say, let them be like chaff before the wind, the enemies. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Now, picturing God as wind is not anything terribly crazy, right? I mean, we, we know the Holy Spirit Jesus even talks about that with Nicodemus. But when you picture the enemies of God being like chaff, well, you have to know what chaff is, but, you know, if you, if you take a few pieces of dust and, and a few pieces of grass and you throw them up in the wind, they're gone. They blow away just like that. Right? And then what? Verse 6, let their way be dark and slippery. With the angel of the Lord pursuing them. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? To be in, uh, I don't know how I would keep getting on the theme of being in the woods at night. But, you know, to be in the woods at night and it's slippery and you think someone's chasing you. But to have God actually chasing you, have the angel of the Lord be the one that's behind you. It's a terrifying thought. This is what David is calling out to the Lord to do against his enemies. Why? Because they attacked him without cause, verse 7. Without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. For my soul. Now it doesn't David is not saying here that they aren't trying to attack him physically. He's probably got plenty of people trying to kill him at this point, but he actually spiritualizes it and says, "Not only are they trying to kill me physically, but they've dug a pit for my soul." Now, that means that they're trying to spiritually undo him. Who is our prime enemy? Our prime enemy is Satan, and he is too powerful for us. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this present darkness. It's a scary thought. You want God fighting on your behalf when you realize that, that there are not just people out to get you and cause you to stumble and make you f- fall, your soul, into a pit. But that Satan is out to get you. Prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Satan is our prime enemy. How does he work against us? First way that I want you to see is that he lies to us. He lies to us. Satan lies to us. He convinces us sometimes through our own thoughts and feelings of his lies. Think of him lying to Eve, right? And Jesus says he's been a liar from the beginning, right? And what does he convince us of? He convinces us that we want things we don't really want. He convinces us to do things that we shouldn't do. And sometimes he convinces us through others who become tools of Satan, leading us into temptation, right? But he doesn't just lie to us. He lies about us. And this is, this is what David brings up in verse 11. He says, Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things I do not know. They're lying about him. Even in a Christian school, people you thought were your friends might lie about you. And tell people that you've done things you never did. Maybe write a note, a mean note, to somebody else and sign your name at the end of it. What kind of friend is that? Lying about you. That's awful, right? Why would they do that? Why do we sin? (laughs) There's a lot of reasons, right? Why would they lie about David? Maybe they're jealous of him. Maybe people lie about you because they're jealous of you. Or your gifts. Or your friendships. Or your relationship with your teacher. There's always a way for us to be jealous of somebody else, no matter how little they have and no matter how much we have. We can always be jealous of people, can't we? Or maybe they're just trying to turn attention away from themselves. Or maybe they're trying to get attention for themselves. There's so many reasons we sin, aren't there? But when people lie about us, <clears throat> and if these lies spread, and you get a bad reputation, what are you supposed to do? What can you do? You try to proclaim the truth, right? I didn't do it. And by God's grace, people will hear and, and That will be the end of a false accusation, right? But sometimes it's not. Sometimes lies persist and they harm us. I had a friend in youth group. He created an email account in my name. It was jtbailey at yahoo.com. And then he started sending emails from it. Death threats to himself. I wasn't threatening to kill him. But that was the accusation. Why would you lie about me like that? What did I ever do to you? I thought you were my friend. You see, these are the things that can happen to, to anybody. It wasn't because I had, there, there was no good reason. I, I hadn't been mean to him. You, you see, I, I was innocent. I have to defend myself now. Like, well, well, clearly he must have had some reason, right? <laughs> what did you do, Joseph? But I didn't. I'll tell you what I did. I spent time with somebody that wasn't him, and he was perverse. And so, there you have it lies, slander, accusations that are out of nowhere false damaging from people you thought were your friends. Sometimes it's just because they're jealous. That's all it was in this case. Satan is the great accuser, isn't he? And those who make false accusations against God's people are standing in Satan's place. They're standing in his stead as the great accuser. And sometimes the accusations are crazy outlandish like that story I just told. And sometimes they are a lot closer to home, and, and, and you think, "Yeah, I mean, maybe there's some truth to it. I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe I am a slime ball." After all, he knows me, he's my friend. And so this is one of the ways that Satan <clears throat> works against us. By leveling accusations, not just in our own minds, but through others into our minds, right? What does he try to convince us of with his lies? That God is bad. That we can't trust him. That his representatives are bad, right? There's all kinds of lies that Satan is content, one at a time, to just plant that idea in our minds that that it's hopeless for us. Everybody else can be saved, but for us, eh, it's probably beyond hope. Or that God, you know, God's loving, but not that loving. What are the things that God tries to convince Satan tries to convince us of about God or about ourselves. One of the things that Satan loves to do is is to attack God by attacking those who represent God. Who represents God? Fathers represent God, right? In the home, in their family. Pastors represent God. Christians represent God. So all over the place, we've got people who can represent God to the world, to the family, to the church, to the world, to every, right? And if Satan can drag them down with false accusations, then we can just easily transfer that accusation onto God, right? If God is so good, why do all of his representatives do such terrible things? That great accuser is very good at lying. He makes it sound very believable. And so, one of the ways that he uses people who represent God is by putting wicked men into those positions, all right? We got to recognize that sometimes the way that Satan works is through wicked men who claim to be representing God. Shepherds that lead the sheep astray or abandon them in times of trouble. Or just this week, I was reading about the leaders in a respected church committing perjury under oath as they accused a man of intimidating them and threatening them. And so he was questioned in a court of law about things he did not know, to quote verse 11. Pastors and elders and spiritual leaders, they become the very ones who are making the false accusations The very ones that David is crying out for the Lord to fight against them. How many people, having seen wicked sin on the part of spiritual leaders or those who represent God, then say, I'm not going to have anything to do with God. And they reject God. But that's not the only way. The other way is to combine that with something very different, which is false accusations against men who are in those positions. Right? There's men who are actually wicked in those positions, and then there's those who are not, but who have false accusations raised against them. Men like David. David represented God to the people as king, right? And here, well, whether he wrote this before or after he was king, he was going to be king, right? Men like David with false accusations. And so seeing the, the wickedness of men like Saul, who represented God and was evil, right, as king, it's easy to assume that kings are all the same, right? Who's ever heard of a good king? You get absolute power, and it corrupts absolutely. So, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. David's going to be just like Saul. And then you get the lies. He's just like Saul. Every pastor's the same. Look at their kids. Church leadership, they're always abusive and hypocritical. I can tell you multiple stories about pastors in this town that have been falsely accused of spiritual abuse. Which is not to say that there are no pastors in this town who have committed spiritual abuse. But you combine the false accusations with the true reality, right? And Satan has a powerful weapon among people. Digging a pit for our souls. Seeking to cause us to lose faith. What does Satan try to convince us with his lies? That it's hopeless. i read you a uh, couple of stanzas from a poem I just read this week. It was written in November this last year <clears throat> by a man named Lars Ducat. Ducat? I don't even know how to pronounce his name. It's called The Ballad of St. Halvor. And He wrote it after his seven-year-old son's heart stopped in surgery, leaving him in a permanent vegetative state. He was going to be like uh, Terry Schiavo or somebody who has no, no consciousness and never will have any consciousness every part of the brain has been so damaged except for the brainstem that there's only essentially autonomic, well, I, don't, I don't pretend to know the medical terms well enough to use them, but he breathes, his heart beats, uh, and his body even does some things like he smiles at times, but they have no expectation that it's from consciousness. And so the full expectation and pressure that everybody has is to kill people like this by withholding food and water. Stop feeding them. Stop giving them water. Remove simple care. And they'll die. But this man refuses. Praise God. He refuses to kill his son in spite of all that pressure, not because he hopes for a miraculous recovery, but because it's wrong. Right? You see the distinction. People who are holding on to some crazy hope for some miraculous healing. But no, if they give up on that, pull the plug. No, just because it's wrong. That's why he refuses. And so in this poem, he writes this about the about the temptation from satan okay and he says as satan speaks his certain truth your task is in vain give in to quit the quest that none can win in this there is no sin oh halver brave upon your grave Rise up and meet his gaze. Spit in his eye. Prepare to die and do the right thing anyways. Can you ask for a more glorious response to the lies of Satan? Spit in his eye. Prepare to die. And do the right thing anyways. Isn't it glorious to obey God? And... Don't we need God to fight with us at that moment? Don't you want him to take up the sword and the spear and to fight against those who fight against us? Satan is our permanent enemy. But it's true he's not our only enemy. Think of the men and women who are seeking to convince this man to kill his son. They are enemies, aren't they? David writes about his need of salvation from the Philistines in other psalms, right? How glorious it is when God rescues him from the king of Gath, as we saw in the previous psalm, Psalm 34. But it's really when he faces the enemies he thought were his friends that David is most destroyed, isn't it? In Braveheart, nobody's surprised or offended that the English are attacking the Scots. I mean, they suck, but they're just the enemy. But when Robert the Bruce, their own leader, betrays them... Now, now we're disgusted. Now we're angry, right? David has fasted and prayed for some of these men when they were sick, in verse 13. Wore sackcloth. He mourns for them, prays for them. In that verse... ends and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. That's hard to understand exactly what he means there, but I, I think that the gist of it is simply he's talking about the intensity of his prayers on their behalf. Either he kept, repeat, they kept coming to his heart and he kept praying about them, or even possibly that he was curled up in the intensity of his prayers, praying towards his own gut on their behalf. I've had people I cared for spiritually turn against me, though I've done nothing to them. Writing to me saying that they're praying that everybody leaves this church It hurts. And I'm not the only one in this room that has suffered such attacks from those we have loved and cared for and prayed for. Broken relationships that are terribly, terribly painful. What makes men behave this way? I asked it before about our friends, right? But they see benefit to themselves themselves. In some manner, to be against God's people. Perhaps to be on Saul's side is a benefit. And so to be on Saul's side means to be against David. They see potential benefit to themselves if David falls, maybe. Whether he's king or not, you know, hey, if that happens, look at what I'll get. So there's temptations to hope for other people to fall, right? Maybe they can get his position. Maybe they don't like what David is asking them to do. Or they just don't like how they compare to one like David who cares for his people and the pressure that it puts on them to live and act a certain way. They're sick of it. They want him out of the picture so that nobody has to remember what a good shepherd looks like. But regardless, they have no gratitude for what David has done for them. They've never actually loved him. They are self-centered. And some of you out there are self-centered. Self-centered. And if you remain self-centered, it will lead you to doing terrible things to people. Stupid things. Crazy things. Things like my friend did to me. What possible good could come from that? Only someone who's self-centered could think that it would end up well. But others of these people that are attacking David, he knows nothing about them. Verse 15, the end of it, the smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. What are smiters? Any of you kids know what smiters are? Is it time for an object lesson? (laughs) I'm really tempted. Okay. If we had all the... How many kids are in here? About a hundred. Okay. If we had all the kids come up here in a circle and we gave them all metal baseball bats and I stood in the center and said, okay, now hit me. Then they would be smiters. Right? And that's what's happening to David. He's surrounded by people who are all trying to hit him. Hit him while he's down. They're smiting him. Striking. Attacking. Or maybe just If we had everybody line up and I walked down the line and everyone smacked me in the face. They're all smiters. All the smiters. He doesn't know them. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know what they have against him. He's never met them. Can you imagine? They gathered together against me. I don't even know them. They slandered me without ceasing. This is almost as infuriating as betrayal. We know the English are trying to fight the Scots, right? But Where does Germany come into this? Right? All of a sudden the Germans show up. Now we got a problem, right? The Russians are here too? I've never even met the Russians. Why are they smiting me? Why do you hate me? What have I ever done to you? we've never even met and both of these types of men lie they lie and lie and lie they lie like satan they seek to bring us down and i don't mean that in the in the stupid way that people talk about anyone who forces them to think about something serious oh it's bring, he's bringing me down no i mean down into the pit to hopelessness to despair to destruction And so is it any wonder that when faced with these things, we would pray like David prays, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Will they win? They will not win. Though you die, though I die, They will not win. They will not win if God fights for us and against them. And this is why David's prayer is to God. Fight! And he has. We know how he has fought. We know what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so... They'll never say in their heart, Aha! Our desire. We have swallowed him up. Was Christ swallowed up in death? He won, didn't he? Praise God. And so with David, he ends the psalm. Let them be ashamed, right? Vindicate me. Let them be ashamed. Humiliated altogether. Instead, let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. Let them say continually, The Lord be magnified. Or, My tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. So can we sing God's praises all day long for what he has done on our behalf? He has fought against our enemy, and he has won. And so we are vindicated. Our hope is vindicated. Because he rose from the grave, and so we live forever. And we are vindicated. David is calling to the Lord to judge him. The courtroom scene. And that's what we can cry out. Lord, we're in the courtroom. Judge us. How could we possibly say that? Because we know he has justified us. The courtroom has already happened. And he has said, not guilty. So let's sing. Let's praise his name all day long because he has fought against those who fight against us.